Sport Tech with Abu where you can listen anywhere on your portable devices. This is a series of episodes with different topics discussed on disabilities, different backgrounds, religious, sports, technology and people in the disability section because we're always trying to be equal and be equalized with everyone. So you can listen to this on your various platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, Acast, Google Podcasts or any other platforms, online podcast services that are out there. And you're joined with your host Abu Bakr, the podcast called Sport Tech with Abu. So subscribe, like, comment and share. Sport Tech with Abu. Catch the latest interviews from the professionals of the specialized fields, singers, charities for the blind and from blind sports athletes. My name is Matt Smead. I am a business psychologist. I am the founder of a company called CC Psychology and the co-founder of a community called Working Well, which brings together lots of different people from all sorts of different industries. Um, so I spend my time mostly working with lots of different companies. Used to travel around a lot. Now a lot of it's over Zoom and Teams, but um, helping them to enhance things like employee well-being, engagement, resilience. The community is actually quite a, a new thing that we've set up. So I've worked for over a decade in the area of employee well-being as a psychologist, as a consultant. So going into all sorts of different in- industries, all sorts of different organizations, like literally everything from engineering through to retail, through to the NHS, public sector, not just in the UK either, but working with these organizations to help their internal people to do everything they can to you know invest and improve the well-being of their employees because I'm a firm believer that if you can get that right for the people then it's not just a nice to have but it also has a real business benefit for those organizations that's what I did for or I'm still doing um, and have been doing for over a decade but the community aspect was a recent introduction in terms of us founding that we want a way to connect all these amazing well-being leaders that exist within businesses so they're already there they've already got loads of great ideas but often they're quite lonely you know you're doing it on your own in quite a large organization you're the head of well-being but is that role seen as legitimate or as impactful as the head of finance or the head of operations perhaps not so our idea is if we can connect all these amazing well-being leaders from all sorts of different industries they can share ideas with one another they can grow in their own roles they can enhance their careers essentially we can boost the whole industry that's the vision but we literally launched last week so we're, we're early days but we've got some really great take-ups so far and we're excited about it business psychology as far as that goes how does one acknowledge the feeling of companies not being able to perform to their full potential how do they handle that there's lots of reasons why why businesses aren't realizing their full potential there's literally thousands probably and it, it'll change from company to company the one thing though that connects every organization that i've ever worked in and i think every organization that exists in the world are people right so you know all companies and organizations they're doing different things they're in different industries they've got different priorities but they've all got human beings working for them now that might change with chat gpt and ai and all the rest of it that some of that might start to change in the future but at the moment 
every organization is human centered you know it's about the people that you have and it's a very cliched saying and a kind of a well-worn saying but people are still the most important resource that any business has i mean if you've ever been in a business or ever run a business yourself you'll know just how critical it is to be able to get the right people to surround yourself with the right people to have a great team these sorts of things so for me when you ask about full potential by having a healthy happy workforce one that is resilient as well and by that i don't mean that they they're able to just power through any setback they do admit when things are tough they will share and they will ask for help but a resilient workforce is one that's able to adapt to difficulties so again any business is going to come across it's not going to be plain sailing the whole time but when they come across these tricky periods whether it's a period of change whether it's something that's happened that's affected their bottom line the ability for that company and the people within that company to to work together to adapt to that difficulty that's that's what's crucial for me so actually the the question was interesting because it's like do you acknowledge do you acknowledge that i think maybe some organizations don't acknowledge just how important their people are they you you get carried away with your product and your offering um but for me it you know if an organization was looking to either become even better or if an organization was struggling um and had a setback the first thing i'd do is look at have we got the right people and 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 not only have we got the right people but also how do we make the most of the talent that we do have as well and how do we leverage their strength how did you actually did you have to do a course or degree to get the psychology and the business side or what got you interested in it i come from a family of engineers so my granddad was a, a mechanical engineer my dad was a nuclear engineer my brother is a nuclear engineer so it was all very engineering the hard edge focused when i was growing up and and through school i was maths physics chemistry i was very science focused whether or not that was my true calling i don't think so but that's that's what i did i had what you could call an early life crisis at the age of 17 18 where i thought i don't want to do this anymore i don't want to be an engineer i am much more interested in people rather than nuclear products and i don't want to take a different route so i i changed my focus it was more less about what was i what was i good at or what was i trained in and it was more about what do i really enjoy and when i asked myself that question psychology really stood out and i thought you know what psychology sounds like something i could really be inspired by so luckily enough i converted my course and i went and did psychology at undergrad so i did a three year course at sheffield university um and then the rest is history i loved it so much that i then stayed on and did a masters so i did a one year masters course again at sheffield university in a in a course called occupational psychology um there's other versions of it so it, sometimes it's called organizational psychology sometimes it's called business psychology but essentially they're all the same thing it's a it's a masters level qualification that you need to have a psychology undergrad degree undergraduate degree to to obtain but that leaves you in a position or it left me in a position where I was then a business psychologist I got a job straight out of university for a business psychology company and I loved it I loved it I started out as an analyst so analyzing survey data and then over time I adapted that role and did much more client facing jobs so whether that was coaching whether that was training how does financial loss affect businesses on the whole and how do they come back from suffering a financial loss what do they do about it this must yeah. have affected yeah. in the lockdown and the coronavirus also this might yeah. fall nicely with that as well lots of ways that they that people can adapt the one that i'm drawn to given my experiences 
the effect that it has on people. And I've seen some of this, actually. So with some organisations, and my own organisation, for that matter, took a real hit during COVID. You know, I had a full diary booked with working with organisations and that completely fell apart for the period of three or four months. We experienced that financial loss, but, but so did our clients. And the really interesting thing, I think, is the psychological impact it has on people. So, um, look, without going into it in too much detail, essentially your brain has two systems, okay? It's called system one and system two, or fast and slow thinking. Now, the fast thinking, your brain much prefers to do. It's the stuff that almost happens automatically. It's it's the root of things like your habits and your biases, right? So, you know, you've seen something a hundred times before and you react in a certain way. And that's a perfectly human, it's a perfectly natural thing to do. But what that does is it informs a lot of your behavior and a lot of your decision-making. The reason why that's relevant is because when something happens like financial loss it can really affect that fast thinking level in terms of how you operate so for example i you know i can speak from personal experience and from speaking with clients things like your risk appetite can then go right down by risk appetite i mean are we going to invest in potentially creative or risky ideas we may have done that when we were doing well financially, because if it goes wrong, what's the worst that can happen? We'll learn, we'll move forward. The risk when someone suffered a financial loss is then maybe you'll stop taking those risks because you'll think we don't have as much buffer or it's just, it's not even the money. It's more the psychological impact that that, that, that period such as COVID has had where you think, well, you know, if we, if we try something new as a business, what happens if there's another huge pandemic or, you know, another Brexit or something that that, ha- that happens on a, on a wide scale level? That might affect us. So what it can do is even subconsciously, it starts to affect things like your risk appetite and your willingness to collaborate, perhaps. Maybe you become a bit more insular. Because you think a lot of companies, they just they just thought, right, how do we survive? How do we get through this? They batten down the hatches. They stop speaking to people, to other companies. They they stop collaborating perhaps, perhaps as, they, as much as they should have. And that's a perfectly human reaction to a very extreme thing such as COVID. The difficulty then, to go right back to your question, is when you come out of COVID and you've no longer got those restrictions, how psychologically do you then start taking a few more risks, being a bit more creative, being more collaborative? That's the tricky part. You know, back to your question, you said, how how do they bounce back? It's working on identifying how their psychology has changed, perhaps as a leadership team, and consciously making a decision. Were there any barriers uh, now you've overcome? Say, oh, like, say, if a business approaches you now and say, for example, this happens again, have you got a plan B or plan C now in the future? Yes, in the sense that I think it's given everybody a kick up the backside, for want of a better word, um, to use things like, um, you know, delivery, online delivery. You know, so a lot of the work I do, for example, is delivered online now rather than in person. Things that before COVID you wouldn't have even considered doing online. But now people are much more likely to do that. And actually, I had a meeting set for Monday this week and it was meant to be in person. And I still enjoy meeting people in person. But a couple of days before or the week before, we got to speaking on the phone and we were like, why are we doing this in person? You know, this could quite easily be done virtually. And actually, we ran it virtually and it worked really, really well. We found new ways of working and that will hopefully, fingers crossed, insulate us against something like that happening again in the future. For example, if someone approached you, they said they've got a business and they want to sort something out. What's the full process of it? I work with organisations on all sorts of different levels. So my, my preference, 
difference actually is to start right at a very strategic level with organizations so they would come to me and say look you know we do not have a strategy for the well-being of our employees we may have in data that shows us that some people are struggling that some people are burnt out that some people have got mental health issues we've got some data we don't know what to do so rather than jumping straight in and trying to fix the problem as a scientist my my first approach would always be let's let's try and understand what's going on that includes me asking them lots of questions so i would never or yeah when i'm approached by a client who says i think this is what we need i would never re- respond to that by saying okay let's do it i would respond by saying why do you think you need that and tell me more and, and what data do you have to to, to back that up um you know because i really want to understand how they've identified the issues that they think they're coming with and whether there's any other issues that perhaps are, are, are a root cause of of, of what they're, they're again what they're they're coming to me with so it's about identifying again i'm a data junkie so i would say could we collect some data um could we speak to employees could we send a survey could we do focus groups there'd be quite a long potentially like exploration or identification stage once you've got past that then it's about saying right what what might make a difference here and again i wouldn't necessarily do that on my own i could make some suggestions to a business of course i could based on my experience but i would like to co-create that with the business it's like how can i work with you so that we can work out a way to make positive changes to whether it's individuals lives or whether it's the business as a whole so yeah i'd go through stages like that and then i'd, I'd evaluate the impact of it as well a couple of more questions on business psychology and then we'll go on to the positive mindset so one what are the psychological challenges of emerging into a, a famous franchise brand? What okay. are the challenges that they face? Franchise is a really interesting model. It's a really interesting model, right? Because I wonder how much research has been done about this. Because you've got full control. You've got full autonomy over your brand, your approach, your value proposition. You can decide what you do, right? If you're going into work for an organization as a full-time employee, you have little autonomy, if if, if not no, no autonomy over... You have autonomy in your role, but you have no autonomy in terms of what that company is called and what its brand is and what its, cult, uh, what its um, cultural values are and these sorts of things. They exist. They're pre-existing. Franchise model... Now, that's interesting because that's a bit of a mix of both, right? So that's saying I own the business and I can take this in a direction that I think would be helpful. But what you've got is you're tying into an existing household brand that I guess would bring pros and cons. So obvious pros are that you can lean on that brand. You don't need there are certain things that you won't need to do that a pure startup would have to do such as building that brand awareness that's that's done for you right because the household brand already exists the downside to it would be perhaps that brings with it a certain level of expectation from potential customers you know so potential customers have already got an idea in their head of how your business should work you know i've been to one of these franchise out franchise out outlets before and this is how it works so it should be the same here Whereas actually, maybe you don't want to do it that way. So how does psychology affect businesses in the private sector and the public sector? Similarly, in a 
sense that they've all got humans. So if I'm working in an NHS trust or I'm working in a huge multinational tech firm, there's human beings. You know, that guy called Dave there, that lady called <laughs> Jasmine there, you know, they're, they're human beings and it doesn't really matter whether they're working public sector or private sector. So in terms of the psychology of them, there'll be huge similarities. Every company likes to think it's very unique. <laughs> you know, you've never been in a company that feels like this or, or does things in these ways or has these particular challenges. Having worked in lots of companies, they're not quite as unique as they think they are. Sure, you know, I've worked in places where I'm like, wow, this is very different. But generally speaking, as long as you're talking human beings, you know, I've delivered workshops on things like well-being and resilience in the UK. And I have delivered workshops in Bangladesh and Uganda and Hong Kong and the US. And I'm stood in a room with people and they all moan about the parking and they all moan about the commute and they all moan about emails being too excessive. You know, so there are things that connect people across industries, across countries, across boundaries that are just, you know, the same things that affect affect people in the same way. But but the, the big caveat to that is, of course, of course, you know, there are general trends that you see across private and public sector, positives and negatives. Public sector, people generally who I come across very supportive and collaborative. That's not to say people in the, in the, the private sector aren't, but perhaps their strengths lie more in focusing on results and pace and adapting to change. So you do see some demographic differences between those two. The big thing is the community. I was talking about before, the working well community. So I am on a full-scale mission to scale that up. So we want as many different people from as many different organizations joining that community so that we can build it. Once we've started to build it, then we can do all sorts of different things with it. Um, We can upskill that community with things like courses. We can influence the industry. We may even be able to influence the government if we get big enough. And we've got this pool of well-being leads. I'll give an example of that. At the moment, a bill that is has been um, presented to the UK government about whether we should mandate mental health first aid and whether that's a good thing for whether all organisations should should have to do that legally. But what we could do as a community with future challenges like that is we could inform the government as to what we think the approach should be. So that's the plan. Maybe maybe three years to being uh, influencing the government is a bit of an optimistic view, but certainly scale the community, create a real connection within that industry, legitimise those roles and build the business from there. In the Asian community and the disability, the mental health and well-being is quite huge as well. And if someone was struggling with it, what three best advice would you give to someone? Not only in a business, yeah. it might be just generally in the Asian community, in the uh, the um, <clears throat> multicultural environment or in person's got a disability if they're blind or any disability disabled person yeah. what three best advice would you give to them i'm not big into just giving like a single piece of advice to someone you should go and do this because because the risk is for that person that might not work however however i'll give you an answer i'll give you an answer i'm not going to avoid the question i think it's a fairly obvious one although it's a very difficult one is to talk about it there's a misconception that the most resilient people in the world do it on their own and they're just tough and they just get through things not true i've met some incredibly inspiring resilient individuals and they ask for help they admit their vulnerability and when they they can't deal deal with something um the second thing i would say kind of linked to that is to help somebody else as well so you know we we get this positive boost from helping other people so actually if you find yourself 
yourself in a position where you're perhaps struggling. No, that's not to say if it's very acute, then the advice would be go and speak to a doctor, right? So I'm kind of taking that as a prerequisite. Go and speak to a health professional if you possibly can. In lieu of that, what I'm saying is if you want to just build your positivity, one is about talking about your own health and well-being with others. Um, one is about helping other people so that you're normalizing that and you're reducing the stigma and then i guess the third thing would be find out what works for you in the near term to alleviate some of that i can't tell you what one piece of advice someone needs because it's very personal for one person it might be do you know what i just need to invest back in my physical health and well-being i need to get some more fresh air i need to walk a bit more often that will give me an initial boost that i need to be able to get on top of things and get the help and the support that I need. For somebody else, it might be adapting the diet. For somebody else, it might be um, journaling. It might be meditation. It, it could be anything, really. But it's find a way that works for you and don't feel like you need to follow a script or a prescription in terms of what that is. So moving on to the positive mindset, how key is it to have good intentions and how does that play a key role? There's a whole stream of psychology, including lots of academics, you know, a huge amount of research around something called positive psychology so the opposite of that is risk psychology now risk psychology would say you know i'm going into a difficult situation what are the potential things that are out there that could harm me how do i protect against some of that how do i put myself in a position that that prevents negative things happening and and that's important that's important from a psychology perspective right to protect ourselves positive psychology is the other side of the coin it says how do i enhance my my positivity how do i work on my my strengths how do i learn optimism that's another one people think that they are that human beings are born optimistic or pessimistic not true there is lots of evidence that shows that you can learn to be helpless right you can learn to give up so why can't you learn to be optimistic have a look at the work of martin seligman good place to start if, if any listeners are particularly interested got some real great ways in terms of boosting some of that positivity but i guess your question was about how key is having good intentions i would say if there's a whole stream of work in academia and research around the power of positive psychology, it's got to be worth something. And I actually don't think risk psychology and positive psychology are mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. I think you can protect yourself at the same time as saying, what can I do to have positive intentions, positive mindset, optimism, work on my strengths? I think you can do both those things. If someone's struggling, then they need to do both. They need to look at the positive side and the negative side. So you need to confront the fact that some things aren't going as well as you would like them to and to speak about them and to be vulnerable because actually by doing that you're more likely to be able to change some of those but at the same time when we're in a really bad space the risk is that it can all seem bad you know it can, we have a negativity bias we focus on all the bad things and we don't see the good whereas actually positive psychology would say let's do a bit of both be grateful for the things that you do have remind yourself of, of the positive relationships that you have linkedin probably a good place to go my name is matt smead s-m-e-e-d if you want to contact me on there always happy to have new connections good place to get in touch i also own two businesses so sisu psychology s-i-s-u psychology.co.uk is my consultancy business you can contact me through there and also working well have a look at working well um so we're on a website called workingwell.community so people can find out more about the community there particularly if you're in a well-being leave role and find out how you can join it's free it's free for new members as well my name is matt smead i'm a business psychologist and you're listening to sport with Abu. Listen on all major podcast services, including the likes of Spotify, Apple Music, ACAS, Google Podcasts. I'm Shona Floyd and I'm the Healthcare Engagement Manager 
Fisher from the Brain Tumor Charity and my background is that I was an adult nurse in oncology and I've been here at the charity for nearly six years now. And the Brain Tumor Charity is an amalgamation of four charities now that came together in around about 2010-11 and it came about because um, our founders, Neil and Angela Dixon for the Samantha Dixon Brain Tumor Research Trust, when their daughter was diagnosed, Samantha was diagnosed with a brain tumor, they went out there looking for support for research and realized there wasn't any. So they set up a, a, a charity to help fund research into brain tumours and then they um, amalgamated with two smaller charities and we became the Brain Tumour Charity. We are the world's largest single brain tumour charity. So you have brain tumour support groups and uh, you have some marvellous other brain tumour charities such as Brains Trust, Brain Tumour Support, Brain Tumour Research. But numbers wise, we are the largest brain tumour charity in the world. Tash was 16 years old. She had her eyes tested in uh, the December of 2006. Uh, as per normal, she had to wear reading glasses and everything was completely fine. And then she started to get headaches around about the January, February time as she turned 16. And these headaches would be when she first woke up in the morning. So when she was going from lying down flat, she'd go to sit up and she'd, she'd get quite a, a nasty headache. And then she would um, tell us that she would also get what she called curtaining. So it was as though there was a, the curtains were going across her eyes from um, outwards inwards when she stood up. The GP said that it was because she was a girl, because she was hormonal and gave her and said she needed to just wear her glasses more. These headaches persisted, nausea, she started to get a bit of nausea and then she became really fatigued. So she would sleep longer or she would fall asleep reading and the GP said um, that was because she was a teenager, she was hormonal and she was doing a GCSE. There was nothing out of the ordinary but actually when you look at all of those symptoms combined it's very much out of the ordinary but the GP just gave her anti-sickness and stronger painkillers and these symptoms they sort of got worse but very gradually and then in the September of that year so these started in the February in the September she started bumping into things end of August beginning of September and I took her for another eye test it wasn't due you know there were two yearly eye tests but I took her for another eye test and the optician picked up that her so when they look into the back of the eyes you can see a disc and what they could see was that the disc was bulging and that's called papilledema and they, they could see quite clearly there's an awful lot of pressure in her brain pushing this very delicate structure outwards and the uh, it was a student optician I felt completely sorry for her and she went to get the qualified optician who had a look and was Tasha's normal optician and she said Shona you need to take Tasha to A&E now at that point we lived near sort of on the borders of Hertfordshire so we had to go down to Welling Garden City where there was an eye A&E on a Saturday afternoon and they did a CT scan and it showed massive intracranial pressure so when you look at a normal brain CT scan in the middle of the CT it's got a very loose X type shape and that's the fluid that sits within the brain when you looked at Tasha's it was just a big black dark spot um and the brain was pushed out to the sides and those scans were sent to London and then she was a blue light emergency rush down to the Royal Free in London. We arrived there about five o'clock in the morning. We saw a neurosurgeon around about eight o'clock in the morning. She went for an emergency MRI scan and that showed that there was this huge intracranial pressure. It showed 
that she needed what was called a shunt. So shunts put in, I won't go into the complex details of all, but basically it drains off the excess fluid from the brain. Um, uh, but it also showed that she had a growth on her brain stem. So she went in for emergency surgery, had the shunt put in. And when she was in recovery, the neurosurgeon came to see my husband and I, and he told us that he couldn't be sure what the tumour type shadow was on her brain stem, but that had I not taken her for an eye test on that Saturday, that she would have died by the middle of the next week because the intracranial pressure was so huge that in his career he had never seen anybody with such massive intracranial pressure that was walking, talking and, and as conscious as you and I are. Weird things started to happen, such as Tasha's colour perception went. So she had a pink blanket and she wanted to know why it was purple and it wasn't, it was still pink. And then we went for a follow-up a week after being discharged and in that intervening week Tasha's eyesight had gone from being completely normal with just these weird curtaining things going on to uh, being blind. So Tasha went from being a otherwise happy healthy 16 year old to being a 16 year old to less than 10% vision and that vision never came back. That was the early part of Tasha's um, story. We then got sent to Great Ormond Street a month later where the most amazing doctor called Yen Chan who was Tasha's primary physician, told us that Tasha had what was called a, at that point, it was called a diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. So it's a brain tumour that's on the brainstem within the pons and it's diffuse because it, it's, it spreads in tiny, tiny little bits throughout that part of the brain. And so it's not a solid tumour, you can't uh, you can't take it out. And the pons is responsible for your autonomic breathing and everything that we, that we do. So you, you just couldn't do anything with that it's now been reclassified so parents may know it as a midline glioma um, and some parents may still know it as a DIPG and we were told at that appointment that Tash had 9 to 12 months to live. Hi so my name is Shona Floyd I'm the Healthcare Engagement Manager at the Brain Tumor Charity and I'm talking today about the early signs and symptoms and my daughter Tasha Floyd who had a DIPG diagnosis. How does anyone characterise the symptoms of the brain tumour that it's apparent or it's about to happen? I would say as a parent you know your child so those symptoms that I talked about that Tash had very early on that nausea the, the headache and they're going flat to, to sitting upright so that the, the pain in the head tends to come at a 45 degree angle so if you noticed and and you know you know your children and then if this is if you're an adult you know yourself so if you have something like nausea if you have these headaches that are what we call postural headaches so when you're at this 45 degree angle um if you notice anything that's going on with your eyesight then what we suggest is that you should go and see your gp or if it's eyesight related go and book an eye appointment um as a charity we've got this amazing new campaign called better safe than tumor and and this is what we want to do we want people to be aware of those early signs and symptoms so if uh, for example a baby is developing very well but then all of a sudden the baby develops a head tilt um, and that head tilt doesn't resolve then you, you need to be flagging that to your health visitor um, to your GP across the life spectrum if anybody has an, a seizure or a fit depending on, on what terminology you want to use so if anybody has one of those and they've never had them before go straight to A&E because a, a seizure is a sign of um all sorts of things going on neurologically. Now, we're not saying in any way, shape or form that, you know, persistent nausea, balance problems, problems with visions are going to be brain tumours. 
all that we're saying to people is that if you have one or more of these symptoms and they happen all the time, please go and get checked out. Go to your GP, keep a headache diary. You know, on Monday, I woke up, I had this headache. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday. So that when you go to the GP, the GP, you can say to the GP, had these reoccurring headaches, I'm getting this persistent nausea, I'm really fatigued, or my child is really fatigued, they, you know, normally they, they don't have a sleep in the afternoon, but they're coming home from school at four o'clock and sleeping all the way through till seven. We all know teenagers, we've all been teenagers, and, and we know that we don't always, they don't always keep to the same regular times that we do, but if you notice these unusual symptoms, please go to uh, your GP, see your health visitor, and if you have anything like a, a seizure, fit, then, then straight to any, please. Whereabouts do you keep the diary from? It can be anything at all, so it can just be a piece of paper. A piece of paper with the date, time, um, and how long the headache lasted for. It can be from as soon as you... If you have the first instance, and then you have a second, do it from the second if you can't remember the first. And just, you know, because we all know, sadly... We can't always get GP appointments on the same day. We might have to wait three or four days for, or even a week for a GP appointment. So just keep those symptoms written down so that when you go to the GP, we, we there, there is an instance where you go to the GP, you think, oh, I must remember to tell them. And then you walk with that GP thing, I didn't tell them. So when you walk in with this bit of paper, then you've got those dates, those times, how long they lasted for, and you could just put that on the desk. Times you wish that you could just hand them the piece of paper and they could read it. Absolutely, I'm a nurse and, and I come out of the GP and I think, ah, oh, do you know what? The one thing I went in for, I didn't tell him. But because we're human and and we just want to, you know, go in. We know they've only got five to eight minutes. We want to keep it short and then we we forget to tell them the most important things that we actually went in for. If someone had this, what's the normal process of a person on a day-to-day -day life if they wanted to get the doctor's appointment, like your daughter's gone through? So what's the daily normally process for someone who gets it and how long does it take to the doctor to get the appointment made? I mean, well, that, that depends where you are geographically in the country, I think. So some GPs are completely uh, have uh, you know lots of appointments that you can phone up and you will get an appointment that day or you will have a triage with one of the nurses and, and maybe, you know, one of the advanced nurse practitioners will um, speak to you. Um, others, you'll go straight into your GP. Um, but I would say if you are at all concerned and these symptoms are progressively getting worse and you can't get a GP appointment and you're saying to the GP it's really important and you're giving these symptoms and they're still saying, I'm sorry, we don't have any appointments, then whilst we shouldn't clog up the walk-in centres or A&E, I would say go to A&E. So uh, we've got um, our Improving Brain Tumor to Care surveys and they're the experiences of people from the last two years. Um, and we're just about to, this year, we will be doing a full report um, in November, but the previous surveys show that 63% of all people with a brain tumour are diagnosed via A&E because of the fact that when they're going to a GP, the GP saying it's a headache, go away and do a headache diary. Or in Tasha's case, you know, she's a girl, she's hormonal, she's doing a GCSEs. It was a perfect storm of headaches, nausea, fatigue. And, and we in no way have uh, hold any GP responsible for the fact that Tash was misdiagnosed. So to take um, your point after about those early signs and symptoms, had the GP maybe two months in thought, you know what, here's this otherwise happy, healthy 16-year-old. She's nauseous. She's got a headache. Uh, she's not pregnant. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't smoke. She doesn't do alcohol. She's got all these things going on. 
on, I'm going to send her for a scan. She would still have had a brain tumour. She still would have been given nine to 12 months to live, but she would have been sighted because that intracranial pressure wouldn't have killed off her optic nerves. So whilst we're never going to change people's diagnosis with early signs and symptoms, we're never going to change prognosis with early signs and symptoms. What we are going to do is allow people to live better with the disease. If you see a GP sooner, if you get seen by the neuro team sooner, not going to change your outcomes, but we might be able to change the fact that you're not left with uh, what we call a deficit. So you're not going to be left with a sight loss or a hearing loss or speech or mobility. Um, And that's why it's really important to to raise the awareness of these early signs and symptoms. Hi, so my name is Shona Floyd. I'm the Healthcare Engagement Manager at the Brain Tumor Charity and I'm talking today about the early signs and symptoms and my daughter, Tasha Floyd. Why do you think the doctors take so long to diagnose symptoms? I was very lucky two weeks ago to be up in Edinburgh and I was speaking to the Shadow Minister for Health, who's a GP, and we were talking about this very thing. And as he said, if somebody comes in with, with, with headaches and nausea, he's going to rule other things out first. So he's going to rule out, have you got high blood pressure? Have you got maybe the early signs of diabetes? Is there a family history of migraines? You know, are, are you now falling into that family history of migraines? Have you got a food allergy? So they will rule other things out. So we're not saying GP should rule brain tumours in. We're just saying if somebody's coming back time after time after time and it's not migraines, it's not an allergy, it's not diabetes or or high blood pressure, then send them for a scan. Do a two-week referral, send them for a scan and rule it out. We're not saying rule it in, we're saying rule it out. Whilst it is the largest cancer killer of uh, people under 40, the numbers are still very low. It's, it's, it's around about 12,500 people a year will uh, be diagnosed with a brain tumour, but around about 5,400-ish will die. So of those 4,500, we want them to be able to live well. So all we're saying is when we're doing this campaign and we're asking people to be more aware of those early signs and symptoms, is to say to the GP, did you know about better safe than tumour? Are you aware that if you've got one or more of these symptoms, that it could possibly be the sign of a brain tumour rather than it definitely is? Because um, it probably won't be, but never say never. Your point is completely spot on and brilliant. Yes, she did. She, um, even though she was blind and had less than 10% vision, she used to go on her exercise bike and raised thousands. She did uh, cycled um, 100 miles on her exercise bike and, and raised a few thousand. She played a game called Botcha, which is a bit like bowls. Um, and it was designed for cerebral palsy children, but they did a new thing with Tasha and another uh, blind young person and made it for visually impaired, and she became the inaugural UK Botcher champion. Um, she did all sorts, but yes, um, you know, keeping fit, well and healthy, I think for all of us, regardless of whether we're poorly or not poorly, um, is something we should all be doing, um, especially after two years of lockdown. We've all got a bit sedentary, Um, and uh, we all need to get up and get out more. So I would say as far as you are able to, uh, moderate exercise is good for everybody. Um, And if you are feeling fatigued, then there are some amazing exercises you can do um, on YouTube uh, when you're sat on a chair. So you just sit on a dining chair and and you can do chair exercises. So if your mobility is limited, there are still things that that you can do to improve um, 
And and science, I'm going to be a bit boring now, but science has shown that, you know, exercise really does release those happy hormones. So as much as we all moan about putting our shoes on to go for a really nice long walk, it does make you feel better at the end of it. Why is it so relevant to make notes of the symptoms earlier rather than later or when symptoms are more prominent again it's that thing of it's that longevity thing so if you can prove that this has been going on for a period of time and you know you've you've got a headache you've taken your paracetamol or your ibuprofen or you know other drugs are available um and and it hasn't worked you know make a note of that if you know in the family there are food allergies do a food diary so you know are you eating something and then are you getting a headache and feeling nauseous so is it linked to the food rather than you know it being a brain tumor diagnosis um but it's when they're combined so it's it, it's that combination of um signs and symptoms so it's that headache with that the thinking problem with the speech problem with um you know sight hearing all those things you may get one you may get two you may get three um it just allows those doctors whether that's your gp or when you get referred into hospital just to have a look at how long that's been going on for because again you know if, if we use tash as our model tash wouldn't have been blind so it's about reducing the chance for somebody ending up with uh, a loss, uh, regardless of whether that's, like I say, mobility, sight, hearing. That's what we mean about making sure you keep those notes and why it's important, because you can go into a doctor, and again, we've all done it. Well, I think it was round about, oh, God, yeah, maybe, oh, six, oh, it could have been, oh, no, five, six, eight, ten. If we can go in and be clear, it's been ten weeks, this is what happens, the, the doctor can see that pattern. We know that obesity can cause some cancers. We, we know that um, bad lifestyle choices can cause cancers. You know, alcohol, for example, can cause uh, liver cancers, um, kidney, etc., etc. So we know there are links, but we don't really know about the links to brain tumours because the, the, the brain is, is encapsulated in this wonderful box and we've got this um, magical layer called the blood-brain barrier. We're not always 100% certain about what's how or why they occur some some are genetic so that means that your parents coming together have caused that the parents may not get it but you could we now know when i started nursing we didn't necessarily we, we knew there was a hereditary link between in breast cancer and now we know that, that there's a gene called BRCA1 and we know that, that that's that family link and we and we know that there's a family link with early onset alzheimer's so who's to say what we'll find out in the future with the research that's going on into brain tumors Hi, so my name is Shona Floyd. I'm the Healthcare Engagement Manager at the Brain Tumor Charity and I'm talking today about the early signs and symptoms and my daughter, Tasha Floyd, who had a DIPG diagnosis. So if someone's got the cancer or the brain tumour going forward, what advice would you give to them before saying, oh, we've definitely got it or not got it? What advice would you give them? When they've got that diagnosis, I would say get support. We have the most amazing support team at the Brain Tumor Charity. We've got an adult support team. We have a children family support team and we have a young adult support team. And then you also have other charities like Brain Tumor Support and Brain Trust who also offer support. So I would say get that support from the specialists that have got those people that can help you understand your diagnosis, help you understand your prognosis um, and help support you as you go through this pathway because it, it can be very 
isolating having any cancer diagnosis, but even more so with, with, a, with a brain tumour because it can affect your personality. You can have behavioural changes um, and you may find that people aren't very comfortable. Friends that you may have had for a long time may not be comfortable because they, they don't understand how to, what it means for you and what that looks like. So I would say contact any of, of the charities to, to get that support. Um, and those charities, um, we, for example, have got a benefits line where we have the most amazing two people who come and talk about benefits you can book an appointment and they'll help you with all things benefits our, our young adults have young adult meetups and that's not just for people young adults with brain tumors that's for um, their siblings as well or if their parents have got a brain tumor because again they need that support dealing with the fact that they've got a, a parent with a brain tumor or um, you know a grandparent with a brain tumor i would say surround yourself with support know that you're not on your own and if you need it counseling um because getting counseling will help you deal with those emotions give you um ways in, in which you can put in place coping strategies for you the next phase is hyperactivity and involuntary movements and how it can impact a brain tumour. So how does the brain become so overactive and what are the signs? And how does that relate to a brain tumour? I would say that if you've already got ADHD or, or a hyperactive diagnosis, then your neurologist may be able to tweak the medications and um, may be able to, to tweak the medications that you're already on in order to, to make that balance. If the brain tumour is situated in or pressing up against that area, then yes. If the brain tumour is in a part of the brain that doesn't control movement, um, and isn't pressing up against it or growing into it, then I would say no. Yeah. So the brain's a very complex thing and we still don't fully understand how all of it works, but it compensates for, for you know, if one bit's not working properly, it will compensate. But for that involuntary movement, I would say, going back to my university days and anatomy and physiology, if it's not impacting that point of the brain, then involuntary movements probably wouldn't be an issue. What events or what have they got planned for the Brain Tumour Awareness Month, your organisation? Yes, lots of things. So we've got an advert out on Sky at the moment, or Edisafen Tumour, which, if you like F1, was actually at the far start of the F1 Bahrain race the other weekend. So keep an eye out for that. We are um, have our amazing team of community fundraisers who are completely brilliant, and they are going out and about and going into hospitals hospitals and and giving out leaflets to the GP surgeries. We have got our amazing supporter groups who are doing cake sales and jumping out of aeroplanes and cycling mad distances and, and doing all these things. So our community fundraiser are out supporting all of our community as they do these things. I'm going to be in Adderbrooks next week on Wednesday with our community fundraiser for this area, Liam, and we're going to be handing out our Better Safe and Tumour cards and information for anybody that wants it. And we have our Twilight Walk coming up, which will be in and around London. So if you're interested and you're near London, have a look on online for the Brain Tumor Charity Twilight Walk and come and join us. So it's a busy packed month um, for, for the Brain Tumor community. What food should they avoid or should not have or does that depend on the condition of the brain tumor that person's got? I would say it depends on the person. Some people when they're having chemotherapy and radiotherapy will tell you they get a very metallic-y taste in their mouth and some foods taste completely revolting. So I'm going to pick on Tash again. Tash loved a banana and could not eat bananas when she was having chemotherapy and radiotherapy 
hydrotherapy because she said it, it tasted like eating um, aluminium foil. She said it was just really, really awful. Um, so, but once you finish your chemotherapy and radiotherapy, your taste goes back to normal once the drugs are, you know, out of the system. But some foods can taste dreadful and with the nausea i'm a big advocate i'm afraid of ginger so from a nursing perspective when i did my did my midwifery training we would say nibble on a ginger biscuit completely brilliant for um for, for, for nausea but if you don't like ginger then nibble on a dry biscuit and just have something uh, in your tummy but food wise eat whatever you want to eat and you know if it tastes good then obviously i'm not advocating kfc mcdonald's and any other fast food uh, but every now and then it doesn't hurt but a good balanced diet, five or six fresh fruit and veg a day, good protein, good carbohydrates, nice and balanced. But have a treat every now and then because treats never hurt anybody. So if they go onto the website and, and type in the Brain Tumor Charity, then that comes up with all the information. If they want some early diagnosis cards to, to give out to their GPs, then go on to Better Safe and Tumor or HeadSmart and you can order resources to take to your GP or your local optometry and take those in and say, you know, I heard uh, an interview by the brain tumor charity and um, they've got these cards um i think you know you should have them in the waiting room and we will happily send out um any resources like that and if you already have a brain tumor and you want some resources then we have our information pack information on our counseling and support services everything's all there online ready for you just to click the button www.thebraintumorcharity.org so it's all one word and brain is br a-I-N and tumour is T-U-M-O-U-R so it's the British spelling not the American spelling of, of tumour and we're on Facebook again just type in the Brain Tumour Charity um, our young people have got an Instagram page just type in Brain Tumour Charity everything is just easily led from, from there for Twitter um, and all social media and type in Better Safe Than Tumour or HeadSmart and again it's got resources when you scroll down it's got shop and then resources and you can get those ordered and the cards are free of charge HeadSmart Yep, it's H-E-A-D-S-M-A-R-T. So H-E-A-D-S-M-A-R-T, and it's all one word. So our support and information about brain tumours number is 0808-800-0004. So that's 0808-800-0004. And if you just um, want to look at general inquiries, um, then the... The main number for that is 01252 So that's general inquiries on 01252 And that first number, again, important information is 0808 800 I'm Shona Floyd and I work at the Brain Tumor Charity. And you're listening to Sport Tech with Abu. Sport Tech with Abu. Catch the latest interviews from the professionals of the specialized fields, singers, charities for the blind and from blind sports athletes. My name's Sarah Coughlin and I'm the Global Director of Health Promotion and Influencing at Movember. Testicular cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in young men. Um, that's really men between 15 and 34. About 21 men a week are diagnosed with testicular cancer in the UK, but it has a really, really high survival rate. So it's a very clear diagnosis through the treatment. However, there is a journey after that that Movember has been working on in making sure that the mental health and well-being of testicular cancer survivors is also considered and supported. It's really important for all men from a young age to get to know 
what their testicles normally look and feel like. So we do try and encourage teenage boys should start to check themselves on a regular basis, maybe once every couple of months. It's pretty simple. We recommend testing, you know, checking yourself maybe while you're in the shower. It's private. It's warm and steamy. And just really roll up your testicle between your thumb and finger and get familiar with how that feels, um, including the usual sort of size and weight. It's really common for men to have different sized testicles, so don't be worried about that or alarmed. However, if during that self-examination you start to notice a change in your testicles, if there's pain or a lump or swelling, then you should immediately contact your GP because that is not a reason to be alarmed, but it is certainly a sign of change. And we do encourage men to reach out to their GP as quickly as possible and have a conversation and get that examined because as I was saying, a really high survival rate in testicular cancer if it's detected early. So which age group is the disease more susceptible to and why? It's what we call a young man's cancer, as I was saying. It's really men aged 15 to 34, but that doesn't mean older men don't get it. It's just there's a much higher rate of incidence in younger men. There are strong links to genetics, so men with a father or a brother or an uncle who have had testicular cancer have a much higher propensity to get testicular cancer themselves. And there's still some unanswered questions in research that we're funding around that genetic link and also tolerances to certain treatments. So there's still a few questions to be answered scientifically, but it is, as I say, a highly treatable cancer. How can people prevent the symptoms and how can they reduce the risk of testicular cancer from affecting the life? There isn't really anything um, that is is preventative. So there are no known links to any behaviours or diet or lifestyle factors. Age is your risk factor. And then if you've got family history, that's another risk factor. Really, it's about early diagnosis and treatment is your best chance of survival. And that's why we encourage regular self-examination. Boys, young men and men should get to know what's normal for them and really be confident taking that step to call the GP and have a conversation. But from a prevention point of view, there's not much that can be done to prevent it, unfortunately. What's the process of a daily person um, if they were thinking that they had to go through the process or any men or child or adult, what's the process? In a usual case of testicular cancer, a man will find that lump or have pain or swelling. They'll go to a GP. The GP will make that examination. Usually have ultrasound or biopsy, depending on um, the types of symptoms presenting. And quite quickly, within a matter of um, days, if not a week, the testicle will be removed um, in most likely cases and if the testicular cancer if there's a risk that that cancer has left the testicle in any way or metastasized there'll be a follow-up stint of chemotherapy if the oncologist is still uncomfortable that they've gotten everything there will be follow-up chemotherapy i think the thing to think about is it's a big part of being a man to have your testicles so obviously to be told as a young man a you've got cancer and b you're going to lose testicle there's lots of things that men need to be prepared for in that moment they need to have conversations and think about their future fertility, whether they may want to store sperm, 
Um, and so supporting those men through that journey is really important and after that journey because it can really knock you six, I suppose. It can really knock the wind out of a young man's sails. And so mental health support and talking to other men who've been through it and come out the other side is really important. Support groups are brilliant. And like I say, asking other men who've, been, who've got the lived experience, men like me with a diagnosis who are on the other side. So on Movember.com, um, we do have tools and resources uh, called Nuts and Bolts. And that is a tool that, A, gives you all the answers to the likely treatment and kind of demystifies the process that's going to be undertaken through that surgery. And it also can link you up with somebody else in your area or territory that you might want to have a chat with. So it's kind of got a peer-to-peer support aspect to it as well. So all of that's available on the Nuts and Bolts website at November.com. Are there any particular, is there any typical diet that you need to follow guidelines to prevent the cancer or the nhs and others recommend you know staying within a healthy weight range eating a broad diet of mixed up foods is always great from a prevention point of view regular exercise but there's nothing specific with testicular cancer that's emerged through research at this stage on the statistics side how many people normally get it or you've known that have had it and record from it in 2020 in the United Kingdom, 1,105 men uh, were diagnosed with testicular cancer. In Ireland, about 94 men in the same period were diagnosed with testicular cancer. So it is still a rare cancer. It's not anywhere near the numbers we see in prostate cancer. However, it's a very, it's, it's this, it's this young factor. It is the number one diagnosed cancer in young men. So it is something that young men need to be aware of, but not scared of. Yeah, we do see lots of celebrities stepping forward, talking about their testicular cancer, the journey they went on and their, uh, I guess, their outcomes. Every time someone talks about testicular cancer, it raises awareness and profile. It puts it in front of young guys as something to be thinking about. Much like women are taught to self-examine breast for breast cancer, it's important that young men know their bodies and know their testicles. So I think that every time we see high-profile sports people and celebrities talking about anything in the cancer space, it's really beneficial to raise awareness and draw attention to it. What would you change in your lifestyle if you're receiving the symptoms? If you've got pain, a lump or change in shape, you should absolutely see a GP. There's nothing else to change other than pick up the phone, make an appointment and see a health professional. What advice would you give to someone that has got it or is coming with it and they've recovered from it? Being really conscious that it's okay to not be okay during any cancer journey and being young and being knocked over by a cancer diagnosis can really take its toll on your mental health. It can be quite alienating. You know, you can be amongst your mates and in the prime of your life and suddenly you have this life-threatening diagnosis and treatment. You can be very sick through the chemo, um, making sure you're having conversations with your employer to make sure you're taking advantage of whatever support is available in the workplace for a cancer journey. I think it's really important to recognise that it's a really difficult thing to go through, but with very strong outcomes in survival um, and making sure you're checking in and looking after your mental health as well as your physical health during that period. How can we support someone with cancer diagnosis if we've not been through a diagnosis ourselves? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we all know with more than one in two people having cancer in their lifetime, there's a good chance we're all going to know someone who goes through a cancer journey. And like you say, 
It's not easy to understand that journey, but we can certainly support people through it by listening, being there, checking in, asking questions, not being scared of the difficult questions either, like being able to sit in those awkward moments of how tough it is to go through a cancer journey with someone. Turn up, show up, go to, you know, if you can if you can make it along to a, a chemo appointment with them and sit and, and joke and read a book or feel, feel, make them feel more comfortable. Like, can you turn up and make sure there's food in the fridge and flowers in a, in a vase, whatever it is to make someone's life just feel a little bit more important and that you've recognised they're going through a tough time, I think can add a huge amount of benefit to the overall well-being of a cancer patient. If someone's got a disability and either they're disabled or able or any type of disability and how could they come overcome as well if they had it? Well, that would be really dependent on the disability. I mean, we do see... All men, anyone with testicles really is at risk of testicular cancer. So there's no division here in who should be aware. Everybody should be aware. Um, I think people with disabilities, depending on those physical or mental um, challenges, would definitely need to be consulting with their oncologist and their primary care provider to make sure that they've got the support they need Um to get back, you know, to get back to work, to be back and healthy in their community, um, and coping with, like I say, those difficult aspects of any cancer journey. During lockdown, um, I'm sure you came through some barriers and uh, you had to go through some challenges, and now we're back in the um, uh, reality now uh, world. Uh, so I'm sure you went through some challenges as well. Well, the November campaign runs online, so for us it wasn't a huge shift during lockdown to run a moustache-growing campaign. The clinical settings were obviously deeply affected by lockdown, as were a lot of the research environments. So a lot of the research, particularly the biomedical research that we're funding around Europe, um, was stalled during lockdown and is back up and running now. Uh, There is no doubt we've also um, probably got more men and women turning up with later stage cancers as a result of lockdown, people not wanting to overburden the healthcare system. So it's really important that now, today, in 2023, we're encouraging people to take that early step, be be thinking about prevention and early intervention as the best course of action when it comes to any kind of disease, really. Going forward in the future, what events have you got lined up for this uh, Testicular Cancer Awareness Month? We launch the campaign tomorrow. April is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. We launch a campaign called Know Thy Nuts. There'll be lots of activity online. We've got a commercial partner in KP Nuts who are doing donating a significant amount of money back to research in testicular cancer, lots of resources, um, lots of video content around how to check your testicles and what to do have, uh, if you find any lump or change or pain. Throughout the month, we'll be pretty active on social and through our own channels, media if we can get it, um, and PR to, to really just raise the profile of testicular cancer as a young man's cancer and something for people to be aware of. How can people contact uh, yourself and if you could give out the email address and the social media and if you could spell it out as well? The best way to contact us is going to movember.com and using any of the links there through the social platforms and email um, and that is M-O-V-E-M-B-E-R.com um, and all our social channels, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Snapchat, use the exact same handle. It's all M-O-V-E-M-B-E-R um, on any of those platforms you'll find the official November channels. How can anyone raise awareness 
about testicular cancer and the warning signs. This month, I would encourage people to check out those bits of content we've created and share them on their channels. The more people who share the content we're creating, the wider that reach goes. During November, obviously, we have millions of men around the world growing moustaches and a big portion of those are men who are trying to raise awareness of testicular cancer or have been on a testicular cancer journey themselves or care for someone who has and that moustache really draws attention to the issues of cancer particularly male cancers testicular and prostate cancer so there are loads of ways to get involved both in the month of November but this month in April I'd be encouraging people to share the content they see come through our channels to just yeah I guess exponentially grow the awareness and the knowledge that young men and men need as to how to self-examine and why to self-examine for testicular cancer. This is Sarah Coughlin from the Movember Foundation, the Global Director of Health Promotion and Men's Influencing Programs. You're listening to Sport Tech with Abu. Thank you for listening to the Sport Tech with Abu today with various of platforms of interviews specialising in their special needs and various of topics that we cover every episode. So please give us a like, comment, share and please subscribe to the Sport Tech with Abu. And also you can find me on more various of social media platforms as well, such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, so Facebook page is Abu Bakr Sports and Technology. Facebook ID is Abu Bakr Ishtiak and Twitter is Abu Ish 30. That's A-B-U-I-S-H 30 as the number 30. And my Instagram is Abu Bakr Ishtiak. That's A-B-U-B-A-K-R-I-S-H-T-I-A-Q. So please give a like, comment, share and subscribe to my Sport Tech with Abu because we cover every angle.